is Arif Katra, and I'm the host of Voices Worth Listening To. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about diversity, stories that I hope will make you think and reflect on how we experience each other's differences. My goal is to encourage change in our individual perspectives and in the ways in which we live and work together. Today's podcast asks an important question. Can an organization improve its performance by creating a more inclusive work environment? When I taught strategy to MBA students, I always began my first class by going to the board and saying, I'm about to put up a very important formula. I would slowly approach the board and wait. When you could hear a pin drop, I would slowly write, Profit equals revenues minus costs. And immediately, my students would roll their eyes and begin to laugh. I would turn from the board and explain that leaders who didn't understand strategy often forgot this very simple equation, which in reality is anything but simple. And although I still believe this, I also believe that leaders who focus solely on revenues and costs often forget that driving performance you know, driving revenues and decreasing costs, requires innovative ideas and teamwork. It requires unlocking your people's potential. And those things only happen when people are encouraged to bring the totality of their identity to the table in an environment where inclusion lives strong. I want you to ask yourself, where does your identity come from? Identity begins developing the day we are born and often ends up being a function of how our parents see us, how our teachers treat us, and how our bosses evaluate us. I was certain that the origin of the word identity would be the Latin sui generis, which means unique. But in fact, the Latin origin of the word identity is identitatum, which means sameness or oneness. For a second, I was confused. But when I thought about it, it made a great deal of sense. See, as a person of color who has lived as a minority for most of his life in Canada and the U.S., identity for me has never been simply about being unique. It has always been a struggle between being me and being an acceptable version of me acceptable to the context in which I live and work. So naturally, I invested a good deal of time finding professional opportunities where I could be open about my passion, commitment, and talents without having to constantly worry about fitting in. Did I find these opportunities? Sometimes. Well, rarely. But here's what 30 years of experience has taught me. If you are a leader and you cannot create a context of inclusion that unlocks individual potential, your organization will enable underperformance. It will struggle to find diverse top talent, develop it, and leverage it to drive performance. You might be thinking, really, Arif? Is this true? Let's think about the role of competition. Sometimes competition brings the best out in people. It keeps them on their toes and focused on being high performers. If you think that's true inside your organization, it's time to update that MBA. 
Let me explain. A friend of mine, Jim Kuzis, the author of the best-selling book, The Leadership Challenge, recently posted a link to some interesting research conducted by Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Two findings stuck out to me. First, Kellogg found that teams are more important in business today than ever before because there's so much more to know in any given field, and innovation is extremely interdisciplinary. So what does this have to do with inclusion? You need to hire team members with interesting and unique backgrounds, along with rich and diverse networks. If you have diversity in your ranks, but those professionals don't feel their lived experience is valued or welcomed at the discussion table, then your team is operating with a knowledge deficit. And I bet you have a retention problem, despite being able to bring in talented hires from diverse backgrounds. The second finding from Kellogg's research that stood out for me asserts that teams have their own level of intelligence, which is separate from the combined intelligence of their individual team members. So what does that have to do with inclusion? If you think the knowledge and expertise in a team is additive, you're missing the boat. Expertise and knowledge in a team can actually be multiplicative in the right enabling context. A team's value is not simply in its ability to take on large and complex projects. That's table stakes. A team's value is in the ability of its members to build together, ideate together, and innovate in a way that results in difficult-to-copy levels of differentiation that drive the bottom line. That just doesn't happen because a whole bunch of smart people are on a team. Having managed hundreds of consulting and work teams over the course of my career, I have seen teams of very talented people who looked and lived like each other produce excellent work, but rarely was that work groundbreaking. Groundbreaking work always tends to come from teams that are diverse and enabled to live that diversity. You might be thinking, oh, you mean diversity of thought? No. Oh, you mean people with different lived experiences? Kind of. What I mean is creating a context in your team and in your organization where people with unique identities and backgrounds not only feel encouraged to bring themselves openly to the team's work, but who know, without a doubt, how much those differences are valued by the team. Sadly, Reality is pretty different. Most organizations struggle with retention. Every time I have a conversation with clients about the state of DEI in their workplaces, the challenge of retaining diverse talent always comes up. The research is clear. If you cannot create an inclusive organizational context, you're leaving talent on the table. And what you're left with is lackluster excellence. And that's not a winning way to drive performance. Why do organizations struggle with creating inclusive organizational cultures that would allow them to retain strong and diverse talent? The answer? Leadership teams in most organizations are very homogeneous. They have a blind spot. In the 1,500 publicly traded companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange, Only 4% have women CEOs, 5% of their board members are from visible minorities, and less than 1%
have set diversity targets to change these long-standing realities. Organizations struggle with creating an inclusive organizational context because inclusion is simply not a challenge most leaders in Canadian and U.S. companies have personally faced. Most of them have never had to struggle with asserting their identity. They have encountered few, if any, roadblocks stopping them from being who they are or leveraging that identity to foster excellence. So for them, inclusion is usually a blind spot. Not in the words they use, but in how they structure systems. They struggle to make inclusion a priority, even if it is a fundamental driver of firm performance. But imagine if you were a working professional who is repeatedly told that what makes you you is actually a hindrance or a weakness. Imagine living in that context. How comfortable would it be to be yourself? How much of your time would go to leveraging your unique identity to foster excellence versus demonstrating that your identity was actually very similar to those you work with and report to? The consistent pursuit of legitimacy, the desperate need to demonstrate I fit in, captures the experience of most professionals from minority groups working in Canadian and U.S. organizations. Let me tell you about Li Jie. Li Jie graduated from a top business school and went off to work for a highly prestigious boutique management consulting firm in New York. He had just received his MBA, but had worked for almost a decade in a number of companies on projects related to disruptive innovation. Li Jie was put on a team working with one of the firm's longstanding clients. The project was super high profile, so one of the firm's partners was directly involved with the work team. As meetings began with the client and work began within the team, Li Jie noticed that the partner didn't tend to involve him in discussions. It was almost as though he was purposely ignoring Li Jie. He didn't want this to fester, so Li Jie went to the partner, who seemed really approachable, and explained how engaged he was with the project, the initiative he had taken on some of the work, and then carefully broached the topic of why he wasn't being involved in the working sessions. Before Lee Jay could finish, the partner said, You noticed. Look, and I hate saying this, but I struggle to pronounce your name. I don't want to get it wrong. So can I just call you Spike? Spike was new, but the ask to be called by another name than his own was not new for Lee Jay. He has many Asian friends who had received English names from their English tutors from Hong Kong or who would simply change their name to fit in. But that never sat well with Li Jie. But he didn't want to forego an opportunity to shine in this new job. So he said, Sure, Spike's great. No big deal, right? Wrong. See, every time Li Jie was called Spike by the partner, and eventually by everyone on the team, it required an ever-so-brief subliminal shift. It represented him sacrificing his identity. And for Lee Jay, it was clear that at this consulting firm, his identity was simply not deemed to be valuable. And changing it, well, that was the best way to fit in. Sometimes in North American society, when we see people from Asian and South Asian backgrounds changing or anglicizing their names, 
we think it's no big deal. But ask yourself if you know anyone named Craig or Steve for whom it would be okay to be called Craig or Steve, or anyone named Craig who would allow his name to be pronounced Craig or be changed to Colwinder because it was easier for the other person to pronounce. I've never met a Craig like that. But I have met a Ligie, a Kiran, a Sadru, and a Tian, who go by Kevin, Kate, Steve, and Tony. Not because they want to, but because they felt they had to. Think about how many people you currently work with whose names sound exactly like their families have been in the U.S. or Canada for over a hundred years, and yet their backgrounds are unique and different. For many of these professionals, including me, fitting in is a deliberate process, wrought with the fear of rejection. It's the reason we don't mind how you pronounce our names. It's the reason we even change them for you. Because for us, it's clear. Success in most organizations is about sameness, not uniqueness. And if that is true in your organization, then know it has very subtle but extreme consequences. How, might you ask? Well, let me share my own story. I still remember 40-odd years ago being in grade one when my teacher, Mrs. Isaac, asked me my name. Everyone's name was so English-sounding. My name, Arith, felt so different. So I answered, it's Arith. And for the next 12 years, everyone called me Arith. When my friends came over, and to be honest, being one of three colored students in my high school, I didn't have many school friends that came over. But when they did, I remember having a visceral reaction when my parents would pronounce my name correctly. Arif. Why couldn't they just call me Arif? When I got to university, I hated that I pronounced my name Arif. I needed to pronounce it correctly. So what came out of my mouth was Arif. Not Arif, but Arif. And that would be my name for 20 more years. From being an investment banker to a vice president of marketing until I finished my PhD at the Richard Ivey School of Business. Everyone called me Arif. My parents asked, why don't you just pronounce it Arif? My answer, it's so hard for people to pronounce. But that wasn't true. It was because my context, the one I lived in, worked in, and studied in, was clearly telling me that being someone less Indian, less Muslim, and frankly less brown was my ticket to credibility and legitimacy. And finally, when I became a professor and said my name is Arif, I was met with, can we call you Eric? And I said, no, it's Arif. The word R and the word if rolled together. But the kicker was when I returned to the Richard Ivey School of Business as a professor. I asked people to pronounce my name Arif versus Arif. And although many of my old faculty friends respected that that was the real pronunciation of my name, there were more than a handful who continued to call me Arif. Hell, I even did a diversity training session for faculty where I shared the story of how it took me over 30 years to pronounce my own name correctly 
and they still pronounced it Arif, now smiling because they knew the story. Why? Because at Ivy, like at so many organizations, legitimacy was everything and innovation was second. See, helping a faculty member be themselves and believing that this is the key to unlocking performance inside the classroom and in the research world was a link that only a few people made. Most of the faculty and leadership was stuck in the need to be the same. That wasn't a bad same. It was grounded in excellence. It was just that it was a very narrow kind of excellence, and one that only begrudgingly made room for my differences. So what does all this mean for leaders in your organization? See, my name changes represent the challenges I face to belong. And as I look back to those organizational contexts where it was clear that I did not belong, not only did I suffer, but so did my organization. How? Well, I was cautious in how I contributed. I was more concerned about the impression I was making versus the contribution I was making. I was afraid to be too innovative because that may result in highlighting how truly different I was. And I preferred to stick to facts versus sharing insights. It's not like I didn't contribute to the organizations I worked in or worked for, but those that made it clear to me that my fitting in was precarious, well, in those, I engaged cautiously. It's what I call a boundaried form of engagement. So if you're a leader, what do you do to get unbridled engagement from your most talented and diverse hires versus a more boundaried form of engagement? Well, you create a culture of inclusion. And here are some suggestions. One, as a leader, track who you spend time with and who you listen to at work. Is it equitable? Is it the same people? Is this a diverse group of people? If not, change up who you listen to. Two, as a leader, who are your friends at the company? Who do you have lunch with? Who has been to your home? Who do you play golf with? Who are your confidants? If I put these people in a room, what colors would I see? If I don't see a rainbow, you probably haven't spent enough time building diverse relationships. You know it, and your staff sees it. Building a culture of inclusion starts with you and how you behave in the organization. Three, over the last five years, who have you picked to lead or be part of more cutting-edge special projects? How diverse has your selection been? If your answer is basically pretty homogeneous, start picking differently. Four, do your team leads come from varied backgrounds that include different lived experiences? Do they have the sensitivity required to listen to all points of view and invite those that are missing? If not, you need to change who's leading your teams. Five, do you have a tradition of confronting those who demonstrate egregious behavior when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion in your organization? When employees complain about how they are treated by these aggressors, do you do something about it? Or do you and other leaders make excuses for these people and resign yourself to the idea that some people never change? If you think some people is referring to the aggressors, think again. 
It's referring to you. Six, when you have a difficult conversation with someone or are providing feedback to a person who is female, black, indigenous, a person of color, or a member of the LGBTQ plus community, ask yourself if the language you're choosing to use would be different if the person were a tall, white, straight male. If your answer is yes, ask yourself why. The bricks of an inclusive context are the words we use. 7. Ask people from diverse backgrounds who work in your organization if they really feel included, if they feel their identity is celebrated, if they feel they can bring themselves to the table and truly contribute in a way that is not boundaried. And finally, number eight, it's radical, but give people the opportunity, if they wish, to be called by their real names, pronounced authentically. I'll never forget when one of my students, Sarah, not Sarah, graduated from her undergrad. As I read Sarah's name out, she whispered to me, you made my dad so happy. It's the first time he's ever heard my name pronounced correctly at any graduation. Thank you. Such a seemingly small thing. That's so important. Why? According to American author Ralph Ellison, it is through our names that we first place ourselves in the world. Our names, being the gift of others, must be celebrated and made our own. I hope you'll join me again in a few weeks by subscribing to the podcast. And I especially hope that today, the time spent listening to this podcast made you feel that this was a voice worth listening to. If you would like more information about my work in diversity and strategy, please visit my website at www.strat-ology.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. The music in this podcast is from the Toronto Tabla Ensemble. To find out more, visit torontotabla.com. That's the word Toronto and the word tabla, T-A-B-L-A dot com. Thank you.